I hear that PCBH. Well, we can't do trauma and PCBH. We can't do it. What? That's more harmful. I think the most harmful thing you could do to somebody is they reveal their trauma and you figure out all the ways in which you're not going to see them. So I think that when we as clinicians get really freaked out about like, do we do trauma and PCBH or not? I think we're asking all the wrong questions. I think the question is, can you help a patient who's had trauma in the primary care setting? And the answer to that is a resounding 100%. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Grace Pratt, the production editor of the podcast, and I'm joined by three of our co-hosts today. And we have a topic uh, we were just joking, I'm sure no one cares about because no one sees ever in primary care. Please listen to the sarcasm in my voice. We're going to talk about trauma, which I thought for sure we've discussed. It's a huge passion area of mine. It's something I care deeply about teaching and working with, um, with our residents, with my behavioral health students, with my patients. And yet, as always seems to happen to be, I think, oh, we definitely covered this and it's not there. So we're going to do it today. But first, we're going to start the way we always do with our icebreaker question going around the table. Uh, and I'm curious to hear, because this is something that's been uh, coming up lately just among our residents. And it's something I've been enjoying chatting about is tell us about your first car. So moving around the table, I actually want to highlight that this co-host has been with us for one year now. Uh, I can tell by the look on your face that you didn't realize how much time had passed, but we are so lucky and happy to have Jen Thomas. Yay, one year. Wow, that flew. This is, that's crazy. That's awesome. Um, great. Yes. No, I'm Jen Thomas, family medicine, um, doing a little addiction medicine, medical director of integrated behavioral health at Morris Hospital in Morris, Illinois. My first car was a lovely hand-me-down maroon Dodge Aries, probably like in 1992. It was my dad's old car that, you know, was bumped down to me and my older sister. Um, it was great. It was definitely, you know, a clunker and it got the job done though. It didn't have working AC, but you know, it got you to school and back. So <laughs> it was fun. We shared it, but we made it work. Um, so yeah, the good old Dodge Aries. Well, dates me, I think, <laughs> but it works. Got, got the job done. <laughs> I love it. Wheels yep. from point A to point B, which yep. when you're in high school, that's like the primary. That's all you need. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I love it. Next we have Naftali Serrano. Hey everybody. Uh, my name is Naftali Serrano, Naftali Serrano. I am the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Happy to be back here on the podcast with you all. All right, so first car, I'm not exactly sure of the year, but it was somewhere around a 1986 model. So that dates me and the car because the car was already old when I was driving it. <laughs> and it was, my dad is an auto mechanic, uh, retired auto mechanic now. But cool. um, And so we always grew up with like old cars that he would fix up. So this was one of those kind of cars. He he bought it uh, for me. He, you know, fixed it up for me. It was a black Mercury Cougar. So it's a model that doesn't even exist anymore, but it was a nice smooth ride. Uh, it's the car that I actually eventually got, um, I say got married in because one of my last memories of it was, you know, driving away from the wedding with my wife in it with, you know, the cans trailing in the back. Cool. You know, this was 
and uh, driving from Madison, Wisconsin to uh, to Door County, Wisconsin. For those of you out there who know the uh, know the yeah. territory, on another podcast, I'll tell you the ill-fated story of the honeymoon that was uh, pretty bad. Uh, but oh. driving away, it felt good in the Mercury Cougar. <laughs> oh no, I'm curious oh. about the honeymoon. <laughs> but another day. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm I'm feeling an August icebreaker. Tell us about some of your worst vacation memories. Oh, Uh, it's a doozy. Next time. Uh, Thank you, Naftali. And next we have Bridget Beachy. Hi, I'm Bridget Beachy. I'm a licensed psychologist by trade, work as a PhD and leadership and uh, also do consulting work. Uh, As far as my first car, that's kind of... uh, kind of funny I loved my first car it was a red 1996 Grand Am Pontiac Grand Am and it was a great great vehicle and um, so I got it before I turned 16 so I have one of those those technically I think it's technically it's considered summer still so, um, my birthday is September 19th so I'm like the young like I'm turning it would have been six I was 15 turning 16 my junior year so, you know, then you graduate high school when you're 17, Yeah. you yeah. go to college, you're 17, and then you yep. turn 18. Mm-hmm. So all of my friends, you know, like had their license or whatever. So my parents got me the car in the summer when I still like had my permit. So I was completely, I got my license like 10 days after I turned 16 based upon whenever we could go uh, as soon as possible. And I probably shouldn't be admitting this, but my friends and I used to kind of take the car out before I had my license. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> drive it a little bit and um we also named it a hester from hester print in the scarlet letter because it's red love it and we were reading that in school at the time so uh we named her hester and i love that car i feel safe to say that any statue of limitations has passed like you're good yep (laughs) yep should be fine right oh yeah that's funny (laughs) never got caught so that's, all. <laughs> that's that's the bragging point. Uh, like I said, I'm Grace Pratt. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at a community-based med- family medicine program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And my first car was this really cute 1998 Toyota Corolla. It had a little spoiler on the back. And I drove it for 10 years. And I usually say that by the end, it had had a stroke <laughs> because everything on the passenger side worked great. The power windows, the locks, like everything. But on the driver's side, first the locks stopped working and then the windows stopped working and like the top, the all the paint started chipping off. So that car served me well for a long time, <laughs> but it was uh, definitely got as much use of it as it had. Um, well, that's fun. Thank you all for sharing that. Um, we, like I said, our main show topic is about to be about trauma, and we also have an exciting special segment to share later in the episode, but for now, are there any news and notes, Neftali? Uh, yes, actually. We have two things here on the news and notes. One is some super exciting news in the world of integrated care. So an organization called the Health Federation of Philadelphia, uh, to my knowledge, it's the largest basically training group, cross-organization training group for primary care behavioral health 
So this is a, an organization that basically convenes behavioral health consultants from, I think it's over, what, two dozen organizations across the city of Philadelphia. And I forget at last count how many people that includes, but it's, I think, over 70, 80 uh, behavioral health consultants who regularly meet, I think it's about twice a month, and I've been meeting twice a month for training uh, in the city of Philadelphia. Now, you may think, well, what's exciting about that? Well, the exciting thing is, um, not only is it unusual for that sort of thing to happen, again, these are not, this is not the same organization. These are federally qualified health centers, uh, private uh, hospital systems, city hospital, city clinics, all sorts of HIV clinics, all sorts of different clinics sending their BHCs together to be trained in PCBH. What's exciting about it is that the city of Philadelphia thinks this is so important to the infrastructure of their healthcare in their city that they are now, they have a line item in their budget for the director of this training consortium. And to my knowledge, it's the first of its kind where you have a city, um, it's both a city and a county, they're the same thing, investing in integrated care in this particular fashion where it's part of the city budget. Uh, that's pretty amazing stuff. And, you know, certainly we hope that that's, that that's just a model, um, that, that helps again, across organizations. So we're not doing one, one at a time type implementation where we really have a model that's a lot more scalable than trying to have every institution replicate a whole new training environment. So kudos out there to the Health Federation of Philadelphia, hfp.org, if you want to look it up. We'll put the link to the press release in the show notes. Um, and, and kudos to Natalie Lefkovich, who has really been uh, championing this in the city for over, you know, more, much more than a decade at this point and did a lot of work behind the scenes to make this case for, for integrated care. So super hold on, awesome. spoiler alert. I'm speaking with Natalie this afternoon, and that will be our special segment at the end of the episode. So keep listening, and we'll have more details um, yeah. about that collaboration. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, yeah. And the other news to note is, not surprisingly, our annual conference, Phoenix, Arizona. I know that all you're hearing right now, if you're listening to this within the next month or so, is that Phoenix is sweltering hot. And uh, yes, Phoenix will be warm-ish, hot-ish in October, but it'll be a lot less hot. <laughs> so uh, it'll be a nice time of, of year uh, to come hang with a community of folks that really cares about transforming the healthcare system. If you're passionate about all those things related to making life workable for you as a healthcare professional, building your care teams, uh, learning about the prevailing models, COCM, PCBH, SBIRT, MAT, learning about social determinants of health, everything you can think of, this is the Disneyland for integrated care. So go to integratedcareconference.com. That's in integratedcareconference.com for more information for our fall conference in Phoenix. Awesome. Well, we are excited that we are going to be able to have a recurrence of our live show at the conference. We will be live on stage again. 
And so we hope that our listeners will, you know, come, come hear us. And I know that we had a lot of people that started listening after we recorded live last year. Um, and we've been thankful to have you stick around. So I'm going to transition us into our main show topic. Like I said, the trauma and trauma treatment is a real passion area of mine. And in fact, when I'm teaching, a lot of times I tell students, you know, I'm a therapist who's working with physicians who have to make decisions all the time that are like literally life or death. You can prescribe this medication to someone and if you do it wrong, they could die. Um, And I think there's not a lot of things that have that level of acuity for us as therapists um, in in some ways. So I'll give a lot of caveats, but even like a so-so therapist, you know, there's, there's an opportunity cost of not helping someone in the way that they need to be helped and how they could be improving. But as long as you're basically ethical, like you're, I think you're usually not going to like damage a patient or cause like deeply lasting harm. And we can argue that if we need to, but a huge exception is trauma treatment and addressing trauma. And if we go about it the wrong way, and if we do not, you know, practice in a really trauma informed way, we can have someone be much worse off when they leave us than they were when they came in. And so to me, the gravity of how we're addressing and treating trauma needs to be at the forefront of everything that we're learning as, you know, this interdisciplinary group of clinicians that we represent in CFHA, whether we're talking about physicians or BHCs or community health workers or all of the many different types of clinicians that are represented in our team, even leadership, because trauma-informed care is as much about organizational principles as it is about the direct clinical delivery, you know, not to say through worldview, but like through worldview. So, I want to open it up to us. And Neftali sarcastically, uh, before we started recording, was like, nobody sees trauma in primary care. But I do want to say, like, broadly, what does this look like? How, How do we see or when or how frequently, how is it coming up that we're treating patients with trauma and PTSD in primary care? Every day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's funny to ask that question because it's like, it's almost like when are we not interacting with some form of trauma, right? We may not be interacting with formal PTSD, but we're often interacting with trauma uh, on some level, right? And and it may not even be direct, but it's just a part of the picture. It's part of the context that we, you know, have in mind as we're working with someone. Um, I I think what you're obviously getting at is when, when trauma is more the the acute concern or the main triggering factor, right? Um, Those are situations that a lot of clinicians start getting anxious about, I guess. Maybe even I would say triggered sometimes. Um, Sometimes because of a lack of understanding, I think, of what it it means to work with patients with trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, you started alluding to it that a lot of what working with trauma is, is working from a trauma-informed perspective. It, it doesn't mean whipping out every time some patient is engaging in trauma. It doesn't mean that you're whipping out, you know, PTSD treatment protocols right off the bat, right? But it does mean that you have an understanding of the role that trauma can play in someone's functioning. It becomes a part of their context and you use that context to inform how you're going to, you know, 
help them continue to make changes in their life that are healthy, help them to uh, learn how to engage that trauma in an effective way. What mm -hmm. I have found cool about working with trauma, I actually really enjoy working with trauma. I think like I, I, I sense you do, Grace. There's something special about working with patients in that in that space of their life. And there is um, an amazing amount that you can get accomplished in a medical center, right? In, in other words, in a, in a center that's, that's oriented around primary care, for example, uh, I actually think I have an advantage compared to my colleagues in specialty mental health, in, in part because trauma is, it is necessary to treat the whole person. You have all these physical symptoms that are often at play, and then you have a physician who, when they do their job well, when they have a trauma-informed perspective, when they are caring and kind, understanding, when they can do a good physical exam and address the, the somatic concerns and complaints, obviously prescribed medication is necessary, they create that environment. Then I get to come in uh, under that existing safety that the patient has with their primary care provider. And it's almost like, you know, I'm set up. If I do the right thing, if I understand context, if I really get this person, boy, I've seen some patients' lives changed uh, dramatically by the space that we create as a team. Um, it's been some of the most satisfying work I've done. Let me add on what you said, Natalia. I think it's so deeply pervasive. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is that it's a both and and a recursive process. So if we're thinking about like how it comes in and how it presents in primary care, first of all, we know from so many classic studies about the ACEs, like how prevalent potentially traumatizing events are. And we also understand now that trauma, trauma reactions, trauma perspective, and the impact of trauma is much more of a continuum than a binary. It's not like either you have PTSD or you don't. You're traumatized or you're not. Like that is just not how it works. Um, and it's a, it's a recursive. So we see patients who have trauma because of their medical experiences and healthcare difficulties as a whole other layer of people who come in with this existing context of trauma. Um, and so there's so many pathways that this can happen and it compounds. Um, so someone maybe uh, because of the contextual potentially traumatic events that they've experienced in the past is more vulnerable to experiencing marginalization, discrimination, you know, like direct traumatization that can happen. And sometimes that presents as like, I have had a trauma flashing red light. And sometimes it's like, I feel bad. And there's a lot of bad things happening in my body. I can't sleep a lot of time. So in my clinical experience, I don't have a study to point to about this. But a lot of times, you know, some people do come in and name their trauma and they recognize that they're traumatized. But for many of the patients who don't or maybe haven't built that bridge yet or made that connection, a lot of times it's sleep. That's the first kind of toe in the door for me to recognize like there's something else going on here. Yeah, you know, the contextual interview changed everything for me, which is no surprise to any of our listeners. But the amount of folks that reveal trauma and the whole range of it on the very first time of meeting them has soared through the roof with doing that. I worked an entire year not doing the contextual interview, actually about about a year and a half as a BHC doing the five A's. And then I learned how to do the contextual interview. 
and I'm not here to like argue, you know, folks do what you got to do. But I was a clinician doing five A's for 18 months. And I've been a clinician now for eight and a half years doing the contextual interview. And I will never, ever go back. Um, the folks, the things that folks tell me when I'm genuinely curious in their life. Uh, and it does not take long. And you get right to it. And the way I look at it is it's easy for me to work with a patient who has trauma versus putting that type of pressure that I have to work with trauma. So I don't look at it as I'm working with trauma ever. I always look at it, I'm working with the patient and they happen to have trauma. And it's at varying levels of what we might need not even talk about it, but like as Nepali was saying, that's in the context. So now I know that, 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 that that's an experience that they've gone through. And it's so interesting being like really calm as a clinician, knowing that we don't have to talk about it or we could talk about it or whatever, the amount of things that people then will tell me. And I'm not using it as like a trick. I'm not trying to say like, oh, you don't need to tell me. And then that gets them to tell me. I really truly don't care if we talk about it or not. Meaning as a clinician, I think that we can move forward whether or not we address the trauma specifically or not. We can talk about their life. And what will happen is when I stay really, really calm, I'm like, listen, we can talk about it or not. I think we can make movement, whatever way we, we, we want to go, whatever we want to focus on. And it's so interesting within like 60 seconds often, maybe even less, they're like, actually, I do want to tell you about that. And then we might not even have that be the focus of our quote unquote treatment moving forward. It might just be in the contextual lens. And now that helps me understand where the patient's coming from into their milieu. And we might talk about something completely different. So I think that when we as clinicians get really freaked out about like, do we do trauma and PCBH or not? I think we're asking all the wrong questions. I think the question is, can you help a patient who's had trauma in the primary care setting? And the answer to that is a resounding 100%. Which that's the lens change, right? That's going from thinking about primary care and specialty care as these like deeply, um, you know, like specific problem specific, oh, this thing can only be treated in primary care. This thing can only be treated in specialty care. And like this person has to have EMDR, has to have like deep, um, you know, months of narrative work and reprocessing therapy. And maybe that person would benefit from that, but it takes a really specific person to be ready to go do that kind of treatment. It takes a, a time availability. It takes a safety and stability in their life. And, um, you know, one of my favorite trauma treatment theorists is Judith Herman, and she does a ton of discussion of narrative reprocessing therapy and like reconstructing all of those underlying core beliefs that are impacted by trauma. But what she emphasizes is a three-phase model of trauma treatment. The first phase is safety. And what I tell my learners all the time, because my learners are like, well, I have to be doing that work to be doing trauma treatment. I have to be like getting into the narrative. We have to be talking about the details and doing this like reprocessing. Like, okay, that's trauma treatment, but safety is also trauma treatment. It's safety is not the thing we get out of the way to get to the real trauma treatment. Um, helping someone to feel safe in their body, to stabilize their medical treatment, to have their social needs met, to have a rapport with their clinicians, with their physicians, um, to be safe in their own body. And, you know, one thing I was noticing when you were talking, Bridget, and I, I, you didn't say this, but it's a clinical pearl that it prompted for me that I wanted to make sure to share with our listeners is 
it's okay for patients to share their trauma with us quickly. What we want to watch for and where I think clinicians get in trouble and especially new BHCs or people who aren't versed in trauma treatment is letting someone dump all the details of their trauma and get into this like really nitty gritty re-experiencing in the moment before they have the tools, before they have the safety, because that can be really problematic for people when they go deep into the details of their trauma before they're ready and before it's clinically indicated. And so what can happen is then they feel gross and they leave and they're not in a good place with that and they weren't ready for that. And then they associate you and treat with like this gross dysregulated feeling. And so we can let someone and need to let someone hold space for their trauma as they're discussing things that have happened to them and their context and their past. But we need to be ready as clinicians to say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for telling me this. This makes so much sense in the bigger picture of your health and your personhood and your life. And I want to slow you down from feeling like you have to tell me every detail and we have to say it. It's a trick because we have to say it in a way that doesn't sound like we're saying that's too much. I can't handle that. There's not a place for your trauma here. And at the same time, we need to recognize that a lot of the clinician's job, especially in that safety phase of treatment is helping the patient regulate, helping them to slow down and to be safe, even in their body and in their story as they're addressing their trauma. That's big soapbox for me. That's like a little bit of a departure from this conversation, but it's a clinical pearl that I feel like is one of the most important things that we can tell people, because I agree with you that there are clinicians and there are BHCs and there are physicians too, who are like really scared of trauma and scared of what a patient's going to come out with and how they're going to react because it feels like trauma is this really big thing that I have to spend hours on and this person needs like months of intensive treatment and like maybe but safety building is trauma treatment in itself just wanted to add on about what you were saying about like that they think of what they need you we got to remember the patient say they're 60 years old and they went through that and they've never talked about it. the amount of time if I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me Nobody's ever, I've never told anybody this and they tell me it. They live for 60 years with it. Let's not be scared, clinician. I mean, I agree agree with you. Like don't let somebody go into the nitty gritty and then just like, they're all completely dysregulated. But then we're like, bye, it's been 15 minutes. That's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're doing. If you do this thing right and you stay curious and you're completely connected and locked in with this person, um, I've never had that happen in 10 years of seeing 2,500 patients. I've never had that like happen. I don't think we should be scared as clinicians of trauma and, and, and getting to the point where it's like, oh, this patient needs X and they need Y and they need Z and they need this. Remember, they are strong. They are resilient. They've lived 60 years. They've lived 15 years. They lived however many years with that trauma. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, let's not tell them what they need. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a superpower we have that I think those of us on in this room take for granted. <laughs> and again, I'm just going to point back to this is I think it is a, such a huge superpower. It is the setting and it's our partnership as a team. And Jen, I wanted to ask you about this because I've worked with some great physicians and PAs and NPs in my time. And I am so impressed because a lot of these folks I've realized over time have very little training. Yes. <laughs> trauma. But or and um uh these folks have such great relationship building skills mm-hmm. 
that again, like I, I can't say this enough. The advantage that I go into, into an exam room is huge. I've got a huge head start in working with a patient with trauma because of what the physician has done in setting up that safe relational environment to begin with. And I've experienced on a few occasions the opposite of that, <laughs> where maybe a physician was not terribly effective at, at establishing a safe relationship, but that's more the exception. Mm-hmm. So, so can you tell me a little bit about like what, how, how that works for a physician when you're dealing with a patient experiencing some form or have had some experience yeah. of trauma? I mean, how do you do that <laughs> when you oh. have like... That's such a good question. I've been sitting here thinking like, I can't wait to ask you guys, how do I do that? (laughs) Please teach me how to do that. And I think that comes from a a bit of imposter syndrome or a bit of the, I haven't had formal training. When when you started talking about trauma-informed care, I'm like, have I had that? And I like think back to residency, I'm 13 years out. Like, I don't think I had any formal trauma training sessions at all in residency. I'm sure that's different nowadays. Again, it's 13 years later. I went to a trauma-informed care seminar like four or five years ago at our county health department. It was awesome. I was the only physician there. So I would guess that my peers and my medical group have had zero (laughs) and maybe they love that stuff and they're learning it and reading on their own time. And that's fantastic. I hope they are. But my suspicion is that I am not alone when you would pull docs and like, what are you, are you trained in trauma? Do you know how to deal with trauma? Heck no. Do we probably do better than we think at setting up patient relationship, rapport, safety? Yes. I think that's probably the secret sauce. Why do people tell me the thing that they've never told anyone? Probably because I've gotten to know them. They live in my town where I work. We've seen each other for over 10 years. So we develop relationship. And so I don't know, it's, it's fascinating that like, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's probably something we might do in primary care as clinicians and not even realize we do, but man, you talk about harm and I'm like I do feel the pull of like I want to hear your story and I want you to have a safe space to talk about trauma but I am on a I got three patients and waiting rooms waiting ah what do I do right like I could bring Mike in he's my COCM care manager but that's not always available so like how do you teach your and I'm one of these I'm a new learner on talking about trauma how do what would you say to a PCP of like here's how you do it well here's how you talk about trauma as a medical clinician utilizing your teammates, of course, but in a good way, in a way that's not damaging, that keeps the door open. I don't know. I don't know if I do that right. So I'm curious what you tell me to do. So I'm all ears. <laughs> you know, I, I hear this a lot and I heard it echoed in what you said from my learners who, when they start to recognize what well, I'm going to just totally steal your words, what you just said in the chat, Bridget, again, that it's more common to have trauma than to not. So when they start to recognize how pervasive it is, Um, and, you know, trauma cuts across every demographic, um, and certainly there are particular groups who have more historical trauma or who are marginalized in certain ways and experienced, um, discrimination and specific like racism and sexism and other xenophobia. And like, there are, traumas that are specific to groups, but trauma also cuts across groups. And I think when we recognize that, it doesn't matter where in the country you're practicing, it doesn't matter the demographics of your patient population, there is likely to be trauma. And so I think, first of all, recognizing that you're doing it, you are treating patients with trauma and holding space for that and recognizing that and 
being open to understanding that that part of the context might be part of what's going on for someone is a key piece of it. But then what I have my learners say to me is like, what can I possibly do? Like when I start listening to this patient's story and listening to all the things that they've been through and medically they're fine, which sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes it's, it's that someone's coming in with all kinds of things, but a lot of times, even for patients who are having a more physical manifestation of their trauma symptoms, there's not an organic cause to what's going on. So it might look like a somatic presentation, or it might look like these non-specific aches and pains and you check everything out and there's not a specific something that you can prescribe. That's one of the hardest things as a physician is my perception and what I hear from my residents is when you come to the end of the tools that you have to offer and you can't prescribe something that's going to fix this and you can't take away what has happened to someone. And what I say to them is that you are doing it, that human connection of sitting with someone and recognizing that light within them and being a person who cares about them and hears what they've been through and also can attend to, you know what, we are going to look into and see if there's an organic cause to what's going on. We are going to think about how your sleep is fitting into the bigger picture of your health, or we are going to be connected in our community and be, you know, again, you you said superpower enough to tell you, like our integrated teams are extremely equipped to address because trauma is a whole person problem. And we are teams that are committed to supporting whole person health and wellness. And so like you are doing it and where you feel like you have a limitation. Oh my gosh, all I can do is listen to this person. All you can do is listen, like, please don't um, undervalue and underestimate the gift that that is to someone that's sitting across the room from you. And Jen, if people are telling you th- the same thing that they've never told anybody this, and they're telling you it, I I agree, with, um, Grace, that you're already doing it because mm-hmm. they feel safe enough to tell you what's up. They feel safe enough to tell you what's happening. Now you have the, now you have the superpower of the contextual piece of understanding maybe what they've they've gone through and and you just being uh, sorry for my language here, but being a fucking human with them. Yes. <laughs> being curious yes. not trying to treat them mm. y'all like that's why mm. I get crazy on this one it's like somebody mm. tells you trauma it's like we got to get you to, we got to get you to therapist or we got to get you to yes. this and we gotta get you that. yeah what kind of message is that like do you if you went through something right and there's somebody you trust in healthcare you finally t- you know you haven't told somebody in years you maybe never you tell them and they start talking about how they got to get you elsewhere I hear that in PCBH well we can't do trauma in PCBH we can't do it what that's more harm. I think the most harmful thing you could do to somebody is they reveal their trauma and you figure out all the ways in which you're not going to see them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And I think we pathologize it. I know we do in like allopathic medical school training where fix it profession. It's almost algorithmic, right? Like here are your symptoms. <laughs> Here's your diagnosis. Here's the plan, you know, throw prats in that. Right pick the right, right, you know, answer. And there's no human connection part of it. That's been my biggest, I think, aha moment, integrated care learning journey for me personally is unlearning some of that, that it's not Mm. a pick the right pill, Jen. It might be a, oh, sitting with you and listening is how I'm helping you. I'll be darned. 
that's amazing. And that feels really cool. That feels like mm-hmm. another tool in the toolkit, right? It's not like it's you're empowering. just stuck and the pills aren't working. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think it's empowering to recognize. And I also think trauma is something like we keep saying how alarmist we get. I love that you said pathologizing or you're like, you know, people do try to slice this out as the thing we can't do in primary care. What do we care about? We care about the function. We care like someone, you know, maybe they have every list of ACEs. Maybe they have all of this trauma, all of these experiences that you can't start to wrap your head around. And it puts our ego first when we want to be like, oh my gosh, this is so big. It's so much. You're so broken. Like this is not about how someone is broken. And part of a shift to a trauma-informed perspective is recognizing that trauma-informed care is not about what's wrong with you, but it's what happened to you. And so we care about the functional impact of something. We can attend to how is that impacting your daily life and how can we address those things? Um, I have a like fantastic case example that just happened in the last few months that I love to use. I was consulted on a patient on our medicine service who was inpatient in the hospital. And he's like this 60-ish, like later in life man. He's kind of a farm boy. He's real rural. Um, and he's coming in because he has cyclical vomiting because he's such a heavy marijuana user. Now, for context, in Oklahoma, we have medical marijuana. And what you hear a lot is that we have the most liberal medical marijuana rules that they are like you can buy huge quantities you can grow your own like it just is all but legal for any properties so but this guy is like I said a 60 year old farm boy very rural active in his church is maybe not like who I would picture as someone who's such a heavy pot user that he's having cyclical vomiting and so I that the team starts to meet with him and they start to talk about the function of his using marijuana because I've trained them so well. Um, and what they discover is this guy is vibrating at the highest levels of anxiety. He's so anxious all the time. And this was his like form of self-medicating. So they uh, say, can you come chat with him? Can you talk, come talk to him about some other strategies for anxiety? Maybe like refer him to outpatient treatment because he wants outpatient treatment. Like that's something he's interested in. So I go over to the hospital to talk to him and I just introduce myself and I summarize essentially what the team told me, like, you know, that you're having all this vomiting and you were using marijuana to cope, but now you can't. And so I'm here to chat about how we might fill that gap. And he goes, when I was eight years old, And just immediately launches into this trauma history of um, a a major family stressor that had happened when he was a child that he didn't have the tools to cope with and the ways that that anxiety has carried through his life. And I was able to do this in-the-moment education for him and his wife about this will shock no one. I need to look back and see what episode it is that I went way on this soapbox about dysregulation and autonomic nervous system and trauma response. But I was able to do some discussing with them about what happens when your body is so dysregulated, when you're carrying that trauma with you and what it can look like, like how he's feeling that in his body and how maybe some ways to think about re-regulation and then how to incorporate that with his larger beliefs about his faith and his spirituality and his community. Um, And it was like, 
30 minutes because he was real chatty. So it was like, you know, it was a little longer and he's in the hospital. They're not going anywhere. We got time. Um, but it was such a powerful illustration to me of how something that on the surface looks like, you know, pot use or like substance misuse or anxiety even when you peel back those layers you go straight to the trauma and I didn't even have to peel the layers he like just offered it up on a platter to me but it wasn't about going back and healing the trauma necessarily in that moment we didn't dig open I didn't ask for the details about how he found out about this family thing and what he feels and how it recurs but it was about that function of how it presents and how we can work on re-regulating. And I think that's one of my favorite case examples of what it can look like on a permanent care service. In this case, it was in the hospital, yeah. but it's still the family medicine team that's taking care of that. So good. Good. Yeah, Do you yeah. have other examples okay. or thoughts about how it's come up for you clinically? Yeah, I think I, think I would say, uh, just to add on to that, I think what's helpful for me and what I think would be helpful to physicians out there listening is that most of trauma, most of, of working through trauma is, first of all, working through trauma. It's not eradicating trauma. It's not certainly eradicating memories of trauma. We, as human beings, we can't forget. We're not going to forget. Um, uh, what we're going to do is work through uh, grief, work through suffering, we're going to work, we're going to learn how to sit with negative emotions, and we're going to learn uh, to get in touch with our resiliency. And, and so when we talk about the power of just safe listening spaces, all we're doing is activating that. We're activating the ability to sit with negative emotions. And when you're sitting there across a person, even just for just a few minutes, I mean, you could do this as a physician, you could do this easily. And seven minutes sometimes sitting with a patient, giving them some space to listen. Um, you are essentially sitting there while they are talking about very painful things in a safe environment, showing care and love, showing them that they can face these very hard feelings and these very hard memories, that they don't have to do it alone and that they can do it. They won't fall apart. And you're giving them that experience. Of that, so even if all you do is just nice, safe listening, fantastic. And then again, you know, I'm going to put air quotes around all you do because right. that is the treatment. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then yeah. I think you know I think the the nuance that we add sometimes as clinicians that I think physicians um, can can learn as well. I think is listening and then being able to shift with a simple reframe, shift from. Uh, sort of a uh, that stance of feeling disempowered by the trauma to feeling empowered through your resiliency. And, and a lot of that is simple stuff where you're just noticing a person's strengths. You're just noticing them. You're just being observant about them. And to go back to Bridget's favorite topic, the contextual interview, when you do, when you're curious about an individual, you'll notice right away. I mean, it just, it, it'll just come out my goodness, you're just telling me all this stuff. And yet you're a great mom and you like have held it together at this job and have, have this, you know, this thing you do in the community that's so helpful for people in the community, whatever it is, you know, you just start noticing like, oh my goodness, 
yeah, we can sit here and definitely, you know, hold space for all this trauma and how it's impacted your life, but we can also equally hold space for you and how strong you are. And when you're able to do that with an individual, it begins to shift their perspective. It unmoors them from a sense of hopelessness and, and anchoredness in the trauma to a place where they are feeling like, hey, wait a second, I actually already have some experience under my belt of having overcome parts of this trauma, right? Because there's no way I could be a mom and be a, 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 as good a mom as I am without having done something right, right? I've done something right, right? And, and so that simple piece is just one of the things that I think a lot of good physicians tend to do sometimes naturally, I think. They, they must, they must, because by the time sometimes the patients come to me, you know, I'll have the patient tell me like, oh, I just love Dr. So-and-so. She's so nice. She's like, you know, and there's a sense of such deep appreciation. Well, yeah, that person has already uh, created that safe space and provided that care that is, you know, trauma care. I see Bridget dropping some more quick tips in the chat. And I think we should maybe talk about like, what does it look like? What are some of those more of those like clinical pearls that people can immediately put into action? I think the way that Neftali just explained it would be the number, my number one recommendation kind of doing a quick summary. And I think, again, and Jen, you know, since I know you a little bit more, uh, I could see you doing this with patients. And I'm assuming you have a really easy, natural way with your patients of being able to be like, holy shit, that's a, that's a lot right there. And yet, you know, you, we can use humor in these situations uh, if, again, you have deep connection right. and it makes sense for the patient, makes sense for your uh, authentic self and knowing Jen, so it makes a little bit, makes it easier to say. But I can see you just saying that and being like, you went through all that and yet you're doing X, Y, and Z, the way um, Neftali said. So you say the quick summary, you have some type of validation of like, dang, uh, that's like a lot. That's a lot. And yet, boom, fill in the strengths. It's a really nice, pithy mm, I love that. Um, <laughs> way to remember it. Because there's only three steps. It's like, be there with them, tracking it a quick little mini, I mean, you don't like summary might freak people out, just like a comment of like, so you went through X, Y, and Z, dang, that's a lot. And yet you're still doing X, Y, and Z. I'm impressed. I think that if you are adding on to your skill set, maybe you're a physician who's been doing this for a while, or maybe you're a BHC, because Neftal, I, uh, a lot of our BHCs, they don't know how to do this. So what you're just saying right. that our physicians, so we're trying to teach our BHCs, our newbies, um, how, you know, how to do this. But if you can, if you want to go like get a little extra credit, you can start anticipating what a lot of people say. And you could say something like, I can only imagine that maybe based on what you told me, your brain might walk through how you could have stopped it, how you, all the things that you would do now, back from when that happened to you when you were eight. And you'll see their eyes are like, how did you know? And it's like, I know, because this is a very common experience that we'll use our current adult brain to literally replay in time. And because we can time travel with our brains, we can think to the future. We can remember the past, which is a really great skill, but sometimes it turns in on itself. And so you're replaying the past, but with your current mind. And for some reason, the way our brains work, it gets the wires crossed and we keep thinking we can change it. And I just want you to know that that's normal. It is normal to, to use your 32 year old brain to evaluate what happened when you were eight years old and it is painful and crushing and 
it kind of gives you this hope that like maybe I can undo it, but really at the end of the day, you can't. And uh, I found that that people will be in tears. Like, how did you know? I've been dealing with that same process. I've been replaying and we don't even necessarily do anything about it. I say, listen, this is just what brains do. This is what humans do. And it's normal. And if you catch your brain doing it, be nice to your brain and just remind yourself that um, you're, you weren't 32, you were eight. And that's it. Your brain will still probably chat at you. Um, but this is a process. And that alone is a, it's an acceptance exercise. It's an openness um, exercise, acceptance, uh, openness, cognitive diffusion. You go through the entire actex suplex and that one little thing. And that literally can take like three minutes. Uh, and if you add to that or uh, another alternative that I think some physicians do really well is um, the other nuance is connecting in the somatic experience. So particularly if the presenting complaint is a physical complaint, right? Um, at the end of that sequence, when you're doing listening, the and yet you're doing this thing and you say, you can say, well, it, it makes total sense to me that you would come in with these chronic headaches, you know, because you've been carrying this memory and using Bridges saying, you can say your brain is working overtime, trying to replay this thing and trying to come up with a different ending. And that, you know, you just think about a computer overheating. I mean, I can understand why your brain would feel so your head would feel so tense, right? And so when you start kind of making those connections for someone and then hopefully then connecting back to the resilience, right? And saying, well, your brain's just giving you a signal, right? That it that it wants some rest. It, it can't keep replaying this over and over again because it's, it's exhausting to do that, right? Um, and that's that's when you can say, you know, I wonder if there's some ways we can have you begin to like find that rest, right? And that might be a handoff to a BHC or to Michael, um, your care manager, um, to kind of do a little bit more in-depth work on that. But if you're able to just do make that simple connection to the physical experience for the patient, then you've hit the trifecta because at that point, um, they really feel like, you know, that thing that I came in here for, I understand it. I got a handle on it. I may not even have a solution for it, but I feel like I've got a sense of direction around it now. Uh, and we know that that from the common factors research, if you just instill that sense of hope, a lot of times patients can actually take it themselves from that point forward. And all of a sudden you will start seeing patients come up with their own solutions say, you know, I need to get back to exercising because mm -hmm. I think that's going to help my headaches. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it's just like magical. You unleash their anchoredness to the trauma, you inspire a little bit of hope, and then all of a sudden creativity comes out of that, right? It is a lot, you know, of these, giving these bits of information about, yeah, that makes total sense. And I think a lot of times where I find a foothold with patients, um, and I, I love that we're giving different examples of the language that we use and the way that we connect to patients around this, because it's going to be different for different people and like what you feel like you gravitate towards and like, please use all of our language, whatever works for you. But I think where I find a foothold a lot of times is by, you know, naming to people that when you've been through what you went through in your past, your body learns to survive. 
And the things that your brain and your body use to survive are not always the same way that your body needs to thrive. You end up in like, you, you get stuck in this survival mode. And a lot of times you, you like, look at how you're functioning, look at how you are rocking along at this level. And so of course, sometimes you're going to have a short temper with your spouse or not be able to sleep or, you know, feel like you can't quite get your mind around your day-to-day tasks because you're, all of your energy is going towards this surviving. And if we think about your distress or, you know, your reaction to this on a scale from one to 10, a lot of people don't notice because you function so well at such a high level for a long time, it takes your body sounding every alarm to get your attention. And so one of the things that can be helpful that you didn't learn because, and a lot of times this is, you know, when people are talking about like past trauma relationships or difficult childhood, I'll use this. You know, you didn't learn this for whatever reason is that you can recognize those things sooner. So like you can start to become more attuned to your stress and distress before your body is sounding every single alarm. And so like, what does it look like? Where are you feeling it in your body? We have a little discussion about, you know, that somatic experiencing. And we talk about the fact that most people and what it sounds like they're describing is that they're getting it like a level eight or a level nine of their distress before they're attending to it. And so I teach a grounding technique because when you're at that level of distress, a lot of times all you can do is like put your hands on your heart and breathe and feel your feet on the floor and tell yourself that you're safe. And then as they start to notice it sooner, then we can do more active engagement about regulation. I made a handout. Oh gosh, I have a copy of it. Made it for the residents. Um, and then I started using it with patients too. And so this is a lot more than what happens in like a single discussion of integrated care, um, like a single encounter. And I'll link to it on our show notes. Um, I have it hosted online, but um, it talks about like phases of dysregulation. So your body's stress and there's shutdown state and there's like your flow state where you're doing well. And then there's this like hyper aroused state. Um, but then the, the, the meat of the handout and what's really beautiful is all of this idea of like regulation strategies, if you can match to what state that you're in. And so this is a lot of information um, and it may or may not be helpful in the moment with patients that are in that shutdown state. But when I think about integrated care and when I think about what I'm, I, I have new learners again. Um, so I've got brand new behavioral health students that are in clinic for the first time. And it's so exciting. And one of the things that I always tell them is, you know, we're not, the thing about primary care and the thing about integrated care is we have such a great opportunity. Like this isn't one and done. This isn't that we have to get everything fixed for this person because they're going to be back because they're going to need more metformin and they're going to need more of whatever. So they're going to be back to see their doctor in another three, four weeks. And so you're not building a castle in this encounter. You're laying a brick. And so when I think about this, maybe in one encounter, we're raising someone's awareness of where they're feeling in their body. And then in the next time our team sees them, we're building on that grounding technique that we taught them before and teaching them more an active stress management technique and giving a little bit more trauma, you know, connection and psychoeducation. And then the next time we're talking about how they're noticing it in their relationships and all of this 
Like there's all of these facets, none of them are wrong, but we get to see someone repeated over time as they're here to see their physician. It's just such a beautiful part of what we do. And we don't have to feel the pressure of, I've got to solve all this right now, because something that you said of, that really, you know, I think is impactful early, Bridget, is that this trauma happened to them how many years ago? They've been carrying it around all of this time. It's not that we're going to flip it upside down and solve it in a session. If, if our goal is to fix their trauma, we are very misguided. So anyway, I think that um, I think that we have given a lot of good material and oh we are gosh. like already over and we have a special so segment. So oh, I wonder if anybody has any closing thoughts. There's a, a lot of awesome things popping up in our chat that are going to go into our show notes. So there's so many more resources. I can't believe we haven't talked about this until now, but any final thoughts from anyone? I know I we got to go. Yeah, you oh, go, Bridget. You, you well, go, you go. <laughs> I, just, I just think that if we help folks to know that they make sense, they make sense, it's yeah. going to get you a really long way. That's all. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you. Cause as the medical person, um, that's why I love this podcast. I learn something every time, whether I'm participating in it or listening to my car on the way to work as I have for three years or whatever. Um, there's always something great to take away. And that that's fulfilling for me. That's exciting. I literally can go take this knowledge. I have a patient literally getting room right now and I can go use this today. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the sweet stuff, right? Woo. <laughs> and I will. <laughs> so thank you. I love it. Okay. So we are going to shift now to our special segment as Neftali prompted in the news and notes. There are some really exciting things happening in Pennsylvania. And I had a conversation with Natalie Lefkovich that we are going to share as our special segment. Well, hello, Natalie. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. I wonder if you would start by introducing yourself and your background for our listeners who maybe haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet. Sure. I'm Natalie Lefkovich. I'm CEO of the Health Federation of Philadelphia, and I have been a member of CFHA since 2007 and uh, served uh, for, I don't remember how many years on the board and was president of the board in 2016. Um, so I have been uh, working on um, the promotion of integrated care, primarily employing the principles of PCBH since uh, ooh, about 2006. Um, so Neftali was talking a little bit in the news and notes in the podcast, which will actually play before this segment about the agreement that's come about and what a landmark partnership that is um, between the city and your organization. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to kind of what the partnership it is that's coming about and what's so significant about it? So first of all, um, the origin stories are always relevant. So uh, the Health Federation works to support a number of different kinds of health and human service organizations, but primarily we uh, are a regional uh, membership association of federally qualified health centers. And as safety net providers, um, they uh, see a lot of people who have behavioral health issues as well as health behavior challenges. And so they recognize that the um, frustrations in primary care uh, often uh, stem back to um, behavioral health issues. And so in trying to address that, 
a few of them first tried co-location, which didn't work very well. And so we then um, kind of in a stepwise iterative fashion moved in the direction of primary care and behavioral health. And in doing so, we were engaged with our um, carve-out behavioral health um, uh, managed care organization, as well as the Department of Behavioral Health from day one, so that we didn't develop something and then try to sell it to them. Instead, we went back and forth and saying, basically, we cannot, in a primary care setting, provide care in the way that you have set it up the country the, has set it up as outpatient, community outpatient care. It has to work for primary care. And here are ways that we propose to practice that would meet your standards on some level that we can discuss, but in a way that can operationally fit efficiently and effectively into primary care. So we engage them from the very beginning. Um, we discovered or realized, I should say, early on, right from the beginning, that it's not enough to hire behavioral health clinicians and employ them in a medical practice, that there's a level of re-engineering that has to happen initially and in an ongoing way in terms of roles, responsibilities, relationships, workflows, documentation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, administrative as well as clinical functions. And so we recognized and began at that point on a centralized basis to develop that infrastructure uh, and to develop those relationships and that capacity. And in the early days, um, starting in 2007 for um, uh, several years, Naftali was our primary clinical consultant and practice consultant. And uh, he was in Wisconsin at the time. And uh, he made quarterly trips to Philadelphia and did training, did shadowing, did consultation, et cetera. And eventually, and this was our mutual goal, eventually we developed sufficient internal expertise uh, to really proceed um, essentially without him. Now I uh, have been, this has become a, you know, a passion of mine and therefore I have been uh, pushing and promoting and expanding uh, the network and the role that we play uh, over the years. I am not a clinician. So what I can do as a strategist and a cheerleader and an organizer is a lot, but limited. And so I have all along used clinical consultants, uh, homegrown uh, as well as national. But again, this kind of piecemeal leadership is, um, has been great, um, but it could be greater with dedicated leadership. Also a factor is that, you know, I'm not gonna be in this position forever, but I've already, been here for 39 years. So it's not going to be another 39, right? And so someone has to take the place, not only of clinical leadership, but strategic leadership. Um, so in our ongoing relationship with the Department of Behavioral Health, I engage the commissioner uh, in this discussion. And there's recognition, frankly, that not only has integrated care become a standard of care and an aspiration 
you know, pretty much across the board and certainly here in Philadelphia. Uh, but there's a recognition that we wouldn't be where we are in terms of the spread and quality of integrated care, if not for the Health Federation, and therefore largely because of my cheerleading, and that it was important to keep that capacity and not lose it, and um, as well as, as I said, the opportunity to take it to the next level with uh, more dedicated uh, clinical expertise. So. Um, as a practical matter, the way to do that is to have the resources, the sustainable resources, the, the stable resources so that I can uh, actually recruit top-notch talent. And therefore, uh, in recognition of the fact that it's an important part of the local mental health system, um, they have taken the step of um, making this a line item in their departmental budget starting July 1. And there, that is why I'm able now to do a national search for the right fit uh, to fill this position. There's so many powerful things about that partnership that come through as you're telling that origin story in terms of working together with those key stakeholders from the very beginning. and going back and forth in the communication and the appreciation of what each partner is bringing so that eventually as you look forward to the sustainability and the long-term, you know, growth and transition, there's that, you know, shared investment, you know, tangible and, um, you know, meaningful wise in terms of what this needs to be and will continue to be. And so it sounds like that's Part of what this is, is, is making that investment really tangible and a really solidified partnership so that you can think about those next steps of growth. Yeah. So the investment is on two fronts. All along um, the system through Medicaid dollars has been paying for services. And um, they have made a considerable investment in paying for services. Uh, more and more and more each year as integrated care spreads and as more providers come into their system to the extent that they now have um, standards of care for FQHCs. They now have a um, director level uh, staff person who is specifically responsible um, for being that liaison and internal advocate and translator, if you will, uh, because, you know, primary care behavioral health is still something of an outlier in the uh, construct uh, of people who whose careers were built in traditional specialty mental health care. Uh, so there's the investment on the practice side, and now there's the investment on the infrastructure side to support what, what they're supporting through the health federation is not clinical practice. It's the capacity to provide this ongoing technical assistance, training, and support to clinical practice. Um, they've made they made a previous smaller investment um, in uh, an annual contract uh, for us to make an annual visit to the various practice sites to conduct a facilitated team-based assessment facilitate their own self-assessment on degree of integration and to come up with process improvement opportunities. Again, it's not monitoring, it's not evaluation, it's really a way to support the health centers 
uh, and the integrated practices in being reflective about their own operations. Um, and they've invested in that over a period of about the last five years. Sounds like there's really a lot of visioning involved in terms of this isn't just about paying for specific clinical services or funding specific clinicians or even individual clinics, but thinking about what does this look like on a bigger scale and how do we continue to push forward? Because just like you said, there are really unique needs in terms of trying to move someone into a model that's very different from them. And so when we're thinking about the bigger picture of processing, it, you have and I'm guessing through just what you said earlier, your cheerleading and your support and, and the overall visioning found partners who recognize that this is not just about the specific billing in that moment. This is not just about that specific charge codes, but it's the larger sustainability of the systems. What I, what I freely admit, uh, I understand, obviously, the importance of billing and revenue. There is nothing, there are few things in life that bore me more than billing codes. I try to know as little as I can get away with. <laughs> I think that uh, many of us share, share that perspective. Do you have any, I'm curious, you know, for our listeners who maybe are processing this and thinking about their own partnerships in their community or their own positioning where they are, um, do you have any thoughts of advice for people about what it might look like to bridge these collaborations? Because again, this is a kind of meta-systemic perspective on collaboration um, and what that partnership looks like for you guys specifically, anything you've learned that you think might be helpful for others? Well, I mean, we've already talked about a couple of them. Uh, one is to um, have a level of collaboration and transparency uh, in the developmental process. Um, you know, rather than coming to demand something, to co-create something and have that buy-in. The other that I can't stress enough is persistence. Uh, this is not a linear or a speed lane uh, this is a two steps forward, one step to the side, two more steps forward. Uh, as I said, I've been doing this for 18 years. Um, so anyone who is in it for a quick win uh, probably won't get there. The third is relationships. Transparency, reliability, consistency. It's important to have the, that basis of, of trust and collegiality and mutuality. Uh, and the final one I would say is that uh, what we do would not be worth doing if people didn't find value in it. So it has to be constantly practical, applicable, responsive, uh, flexible, evolving, um, in order to keep people engaged. You know, we have um, not everyone, not every BHC in the region comes to our uh, professional development sessions, but many who do have been doing so every month for years because there is uh, continuous value, not only in the content that we present, and we never present content that is abstract or, or theoretical. It's all practice-based, it's all practical. Uh, but through that mechanism, they also feel part of a community of practice. There's peer support, there's professional identity that's reinforced. Um, as people who work in integrated care know, 
the people who don't understand integrated care think of integrated care, PCBH, as somehow mental health light as rather than a robust level of care. So by creating this network of shared learning, uh, there is a reinforcement of the value and the, and the shared professional identity among BHCs. Uh, so thinking of all of the um, quality and quantity um, that, that generates that value uh, in a way that is not redundant, it's unique, it's focused, it's practical, and it's responsive to who they are and the work they do. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that just drives so much home about the the real meaning and impact of the work that you're doing. And like you said, this has not been a quick process. This is a decades of experience and collaboration and work in this effort. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to be able to highlight this fabulous work. Is there any other information that you would share for people who have further questions or want to learn more about your program or this partnership? Um, so the only other thing that I would add is that this is an evolving process. So what we do now is not the end point. It's kind of the middle point. And um, I'm certainly optimistic that with this new uh, investment. And once I, hopefully sooner than later, successful in filling this uh, rather unique and exciting uh, growth opportunity, that uh, we can really envision the next iteration because the field evolves and evidence evolves, populations uh, shift, and we still have uh, new heights to reach. Uh, so I hope that um, uh, people who listen to the podcast might be inspired in two ways. One is to think about uh, whether there is a comparable opportunity for a comparable structure in their own region. And the other is that if anyone is, in, is inspired to be part of this journey with us, uh, that they will reach out to me. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. And um, I'm thankful for your just leadership and willingness to share and also the part that you have played in CFHA um, and just appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Natalie. And now we're going to go to our closing with Deepu. For our closing for this month, it is a verse from the large poem called The Prophet from Khalil Gibran. Here it goes. Then a woman said, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears, and how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, 
and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Jen and Bridget and Naftali for being here. Thank you, Kevin, for doing our editing. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. And we'll talk to you again next month.